0: Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and today I'm bringing some attention to a few cold cases from Georgia. Once per month, we have a cold case corner episode spotlighting a different state and cold cases from that state. And this month, it's Georgia. Now, before we get into it, a quick reminder, there's a brand new Patreon exclusive episode available now. You're not going to want to miss this one. It's the story of a man named Big Nose George, whose death was somehow even more interesting than his life was. If you support the show on Patreon and the at the $1 per month level on up, you'll have access to the Patreon exclusive episodes that are released, and you also get early and ad free access to the regular episodes. Plus, you support the show and me. It's just me holding down the fort over here, and every little bit helps. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Corner to join now. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. As of 2023, there are over 11,000 cold cases dating back to 1980 in Georgia alone. Each one of these cases deserves attention, and if I could cover them all, I would. If you have any information about the cases discussed today, please use the contact information listed in the show notes and on the blog post. Let's get into it. Up first, we're heading to Douglas, Georgia in 2006. The story begins with Doris and John Worrell. The couple had met in college at the University of Georgia, and it was love at first sight. After college, the two moved to Douglas to settle down in John's hometown, Doris began working as a teacher, and the couple welcomed three children, two girls and a boy. John had once hoped to play golf professionally, but with the family continuing to grow, he knew he needed a steady income. So to provide for the family, John opened up a family amusement center called John's Sport Park. The park was equipped with an arcade, a go-kart track, an obstacle course, and a ball pit. The family was active in the community and at their church. One Sunday, while attending a church service, the family met a 15-year-old girl from Venezuela named Paula Yarberry. She did not have immigration papers and had allegedly been abandoned by her guardian. That's when she showed up on the doorstep of the church, homeless and looking for help. Now, Doris, with her kind heart, quickly offered the teen a place to stay. What initially was supposed to be a few nights turned into Paula living with them permanently. She fit right in and became part of the family, helping to take care of the younger kids and eventually working alongside John at the sports park. Doris and John were also helping Paula pursue legal citizenship here in the US. Normally, Doris would stay home with the kids while John and Paula worked at the sport park, but everything changed one hot day in 2006. It was September 20th of 2006. The sport park was closed to the public that day because John and 19-year-old Paula had been planning a deep clean. Doris was helping to clean the kitty tunnels that day. And around 9.30 a.m., John left to run an errand at the hardware store. So at this point, it was just Paula and Doris in the sport park continuing to clean. And that's when there was a knock at one of the doors. Doris went to answer it, and that's when Paula heard shouting, glass shattering, along with a single gunshot. Doris was shot once in the head, and part of her finger was reportedly severed as well, as if she had tried to cover her head before being shot. Around 11.15, John returned from the hardware store and found Doris's body before calling 911. There was no weapon found, no sign of the shooter... And Paula was not around either. She was later found hiding in another part of the park in one of the tunnels, terrified and traumatized from what she had witnessed. So now authorities were left with the difficult task of finding out who would want to kill this kind, loving woman and why. Lots of theories began to swirl, as they usually do. One involved possible gang retaliation. Apparently, the sports park was a pretty popular hangout spot. And on one occasion, there were some people there who apparently had a gang affiliation, and John had asked them to leave after they were causing some trouble. So some thought maybe it was possible they came back to take revenge. That theory didn't really hold any water. Um, But then some information started to come to the surface, including the fact that John had had several affairs over the course of his marriage to Doris. Doris apparently knew about the affairs and they had tried to work through it. But then Doris began noticing that John and Paula, the 19 year old, basically daughter who they tried to adopt that they were getting closer than they should have been so she believed that they were having an inappropriate relationship so now we cut to Paula being arrested at a restaurant on an immigration violation as we remember she wasn't in the country legally at that point ever (laughs) She was facing deportation at that time. And this is when she allegedly told investigators that she knew more about Doris's murder than she had initially let on. So they're like, "Um, "Okay, can you give us specifics? And that's when she just shuts down. John had tried to bail Paula out, but this was blocked by the DA. And in a letter to immigration, the DA claimed that Paula was withholding crucial information in regards to the murder, and he also claimed that John was the main suspect in Doris's murder. It's always the husband, right? But there was no proof at that time, and because of that, they couldn't keep Paula, so she was ultimately deported back to Venezuela. John packed up the kids and moved to Florida because he couldn't live a normal life in his hometown after his wife's murder. Like, yeah, that happens, dude, when you're the main suspect. (laughs) So while he's in Florida, the case goes quiet for a bit until an unexpected arrest is made in the case. A year and a half after the murder of Doris, Glidden Rodriguez and Brandon Cage were arrested on conspiracy to to commit murder charges. Glidden reportedly worked for the family at one point and investigators thought that they had information about the murder and were possibly working with someone based on the conspiracy charge to plan the murder. But after five weeks in custody, the two were released because of a lack of evidence. They didn't have any evidence. They just had a feeling. So after moving to Florida... John once again uproots his family. He took the family dog to be euthanized, went and pulled his kids out of school, and moved to Costa Rica. And wouldn't you know it, Paula ended up in Costa Rica, too. The two now live together and own several businesses. Conveniently, Costa Rica has no extradition treaty with the U- with the U.S. currently. As of today, the case remains open, and anyone with information on the murder of Doris Worrell is asked to call the Coffee County Sheriff's Office at 912-384-4227 or the Georgia Bureau of Investigation at 912-389-4103. Up next, we're headed to Harris County, Georgia, to discuss the strange disappearance of Christopher Tompkins. Christopher Carlton Tompkins was born on December 28, 1981. He was described as hardworking, happy, and outgoing by those who knew him. Christopher lived with his mother, Anne McKenzie, in Ellerslie, Georgia, at the time of his disappearance. On Friday, January 25th, 2002, Christopher, who had gotten a job with a surveying company owned by a friend of his mother, Anne, was working on Highway 85 with a four-man crew. He showed up to work that day a little after 8 a.m. after catching a ride with the owner of the company. The morning went along just like any other day. And around 1.30 p.m. after the team had returned from lunch, the four workers were walking along Highway 85 near County Line Road and Warm Springs Road. The men were about 50 feet apart and Chris was at the rear of the group close to the road. According to his co-workers, this is the last time they saw him and the, at the last location. His co-workers began to search the area and they found one of the boots he had been wearing. It was lying next to the fence that bordered the road and the private property nearby. And there were coins lying nearby the boot as well. Also scattered on the grass nearby were the tools that Chris had been using when he was last seen. But there was no sign of him anywhere. At the time of his disappearance, he was wearing a pair of navy blue pants, a plaid jacket with a gray hood, and a black skull cap. Christopher has a tattoo on his right arm consisting of his name in vertical letters written inside an ice cream cone. The ice cream part is the head of a joker wearing a hat. Around 4.15 p.m., Christopher's mother received a phone call from the owner of the surveying company reporting that her son was missing. Authorities were also called at this time, but as per usual, they wouldn't take a missing person's report until 24 hours had passed. So after that time had passed, police began an investigation. They discovered blue fabric believed to be from Christopher's pants hooked on a barbed wire fence, but there was still no sign of Christopher. Several months later, the owner of the property found Christopher's other boot, but since then, no one has seen or heard from Christopher Tompkins. So what happened to him? Did he choose to walk away from his life? Was he attacked by a wild animal or possibly a person? If so, how did his co-workers not hear or see anything? There were differing reports of Christopher's state of mind before his disappearance. His boss claimed that he had been behaving strangely before he went missing while his mother claims that he was acting completely normal. If you have any information about the disappearance of Christopher Tompkins, please call the GBI's Greenville office at 706-655-5842 or the GBI tip line at 1-800-597-TIPS. And finally, we'll be heading to Jeff Davis County, Georgia in 1990 to discuss the murder of Rhonda Sue Coleman. Rhonda was born on January 18th of 1972 and was raised in Hazelhurst, Georgia. In 1990, Rhonda was a senior at Jeff Davis High School and a member of the Future Farmers of America and the Epilogue Y Club. She worked as a cashier at a local grocery store, the Piggly Wiggly, and was a member of Tabernacle Baptist Church of Hazelhurst. Rhonda planned on attending Georgia State University in the fall with hopes of one day being a pediatric nurse. A few weeks before graduation, on May 17th of 1990, Rhonda, not one to usually venture out on school nights asked her parents if she could go to a party where seniors would make their graduation banners together. Her parents agreed, and off she went. Rhonda's friends dropped her off at a gas station where her car was parked around 10 o'clock p.m. so that she could make it home in time for her 10.30 p.m. curfew. About an hour later, another friend who had not attended the party was driving down a road where she passed an abandoned white car on the side of the road, she did a double take and noticed that it was Rhonda's 1989 Chevy Cavalier. The lights were on and the car was running with the driver's side door open, but there was no sign of Rhonda anywhere. Her friend drove back to a gas station to call police and report the abandoned vehicle. The police didn't arrive in time, so she went back, called the police again, and they eventually came. Now, when Rhonda's father woke up and noticed that she had missed her curfew, he immediately began to worry, and he left to search for his daughter, fearing that her car possibly broke down and she was stuck on the side of the road somewhere. Instead, he found police at her abandoned car, and that's when he learned that his daughter was missing police found Rhonda's purse inside her car they also found footprints leading from her car toward the tire tracks of another vehicle these tire marks indicated that another vehicle other than her friend who had passed had pulled over on the side of the road that night On May 20th of 1990, after three days of ground searches, handing out flyers and helicopter searches, Rhonda's body was found by a hunter about 15 miles where her car had been found. It was in a rural, wooded area in Montgomery County, Georgia. She was still wearing the clothes that she was wearing the night she disappeared. She had been strangled before being doused in gasoline and set on fire. She was only 18 years old at the time of her murder. Her death was listed as undetermined because of the state of her body. It was really difficult to pinpoint an exact cause of death, but her death was treated as a homicide from the beginning. Suspicions began to swirl about who would have a reason to hurt Rhonda. Family members were suspicious of Rhonda's ex-boyfriend, Greg. Apparently, they had broken up just recently due to George's controlling nature, and he didn't take it that well. Rhonda's Rhonda's father reportedly had to speak with him at least once to tell him to stay away from her in the days after the breakup because he wouldn't leave her alone. Greg was also known to carry a gas can in his truck, but his mother provided, provided an alibi for him, and that was that. Police also looked into a guy named John, who was dating Rhonda's best friend at the time. He was also controlling, and Rhonda allegedly was encouraging her best friend to defy her boyfriend. Apparently, John had some borderline failures of a polygraph test, which polygraph tests are notoriously unreliable anyways, but he also carried a gas can in his truck, and he'd recently been clearing timber where Rhonda's body was found. But despite this information, police were unable to build a compelling case against John either, and the case went cold. Rhonda's parents received her honorary diploma at Jeff Davis High School just two weeks after her body was found. Earlier this year, in April of 2023, the Coleman-Baker Act was signed into law by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp named for Rhonda Sue Coleman, as well as another victim by the name of Tara Louise Baker. The law allows families of murdered victims to request that cold cases be reinvestigated to see if new technology can be used to analyze old evidence. The law also allows families to view the case file themselves if more than six years have passed since the incident. This case is still considered opened And Rhonda's family is providing a $35,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. If you have any information about her case, please contact the Georgia Bureau of Investigation at 912-389-4103. And that is going to do it for this month's Cold Case Corner. If you have any information about any of the cases discussed today, please visit the show notes or the blog post for contact information. Any small detail that you can provide may be enough to crack open any of these cases. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Also, I'm sorry for my voice. (laughs) I'm still sick, trying to get over it. I have a pot of green chili waiting for me, so I'm about to go dive into that. That's my comfort food. Um, The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will link to the blog post in the show notes as well. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast... Head over to Patreon to show your support and have access to that episode we talked about earlier. Follow us on social media and at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you soon. Bye.